Luke chapter 23, um, I, I hesitated to um, finish Luke tonight, but I wanted to keep the crucifixion and the resurrection, and there's 56 verses in chapter 23, and I thought it would take a little time and uh, dwell a little bit more on the suffering of what the Lord actually went through. So we're just going to um, make it through chapter 23. We'll finish next week, and we'll be on into John. So Luke 23, what we have is the Lord is now brought before Pilate. Uh, Jesus is then brought before Herod, and uh, Barabbas is going to, we're going to see tonight, be released. The Lord will foretell the destruction of Jerusalem, praise for his enemies. He is then crucified. He'll be mocked by the rulers and the soldiers. He'll be mocked by one of the thieves. We find that one of the thieves will turn and accept him. And then Jesus dismisses his spirit, and Jesus is placed in the new tomb of Joseph Arimathea. That's pretty much an overview of our what we're going to be studying tonight. And so let's begin by just looking at the first couple of verses, where it tells us, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, Pilate was um, uh, the Roman governor of all of Israel. Uh, He usually came to Jerusalem during uh, the time of year of Passover to keep an eye on the crowds that came to celebrate the feast, Since the violation of the Mosaic law could carry absolutely no weight with a Roman, they accused him, Jesus, of treason, which was utterly absurd. Uh, When we we go to uh, Caesarea, uh, right right on the shores of the Mediterranean, um, they have this plaque there. The critics of the Bible say Pilate never existed because there was no archaeological evidence to say that Pilate existed. So when we, when we go to Caesarea, it has this beautiful amphitheater. And uh, we have a Bible study there. And one of the great things about this particular amphitheater, this is where Paul would have made his case before Agrippa. And you can actually see where the judgment seat would have been. So I usually give our Bible study standing right at that spot, saying this is um, uh, where Agrippa uh, would have been trying uh, the Apostle Paul. Remember Paul, Agrippa says, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Well, Agrippa almost made it to heaven. (laughs) He spent two years there before he went to Rome, and it's so beautiful there, I just can't, um, begin to tell you the, the bluish turquoise water and and um, you can see the ruins of how the um, uh, the marine uh, docks would have went out. Nice place for scuba diving. But I bring it up because when we go there they found this stone and um, um, it's an inscription of part of an edict that was given and Pontius Pilate's name is on it. So now the, the Bible is always proving itself. We don't need archaeology to prove the Bible. Um, and you can actually find that. This, this is a, a copy. Uh, the original is actually in some museum somewhere, I forget, in, in Europe. So this is a copy that they have when we visit uh, Caesarea. And we usually do that on our first, first day there. So we find in the next verse three, so Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, it is as you say, or in other words, yes, I am. So here, again, uh, for those who say uh, Jesus never said uh, he was God, um, uh, 
by saying that he was the king of the Jews. He's acknowledging uh, that he is their Messiah. And uh, try to put yourself in Pilate's position. He's, he's having um, this trial, and he's looking at Jesus. That had to be something. He's, you're a king, and um, he wasn't dressed like a king. I'm sure he was dressed in uh, his ordinary carpenter clothing. And um, I'm sure as Pilate was checking him out, he probably thought, well, you don't look like one. In verses four through seven, then Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I don't find fault in this man. That'll be the first time that this statement is made. Now remember, keep in mind, as he's being examined, and if he's a type of the Passover lamb that we talked about on Sunday, or the Sunday before, remember that you took the lamb in on the 10th of Nisan, and he would actually come into the house for, for four days until the 14th of Nisan, um, which there would be a bonding effect that would take place because you have this cute little lamb, but it had to be examined first of all. It had to be a, a male lamb of one year and could have no blemish. In other words, without fault. So here we have that being fulfilled because Pilate is going to examine him, and so is Herod, we're going to find out. And... Um, after the examination, Pilate's determination, his judgment is, I find no fault in this man. But they were even more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this, the Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man was a Galilean. As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at this time. Now here, Pilate simply wants to get off uh, the hook. We're going to find, we're going to read in another of the Gospels that there's a whole lot more going on here that's causing Pilate concern. Since Galilee was under Herod's uh, jurisdiction, and Herod was also in Jerusalem, Pilate sent Jesus to him. Um, And this is no coincidence at all, as we're going to see in a a minute. All right, let's pick it up in verses 8 through um, 12 here. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him. Being from the region of the Galilee, well, there were thousands and thousands everywhere that the Lord went, the multitudes from Capernaum to Bethsaida to Chorazin. Um, That whole northern part of the Galilee is where Herod was from, so he had heard all these stories. And now he, it says he hoped to see him do some miracle. And then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Uh, This is a fulfillment, again, of Isaiah 53. We'll be going there in a second. Uh, And the chief priest and the scribe stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt. They mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate, And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, but before they had been at enmity with each other. So their animosity towards the Lord actually caused a bond between these two guys. Let's flip back to, let's go to Luke chapter 13, for starters. Luke 13, verse 31 through 35. Talking about Herod. It says, on that very day some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets 
and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, even as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is now left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Herod at this time wants to kill him, but the Lord's words for his respect for Herod was zip to none. And he just says, go tell that fox exactly what I'm doing. Let's look at Matthew's account of this. It even has more detail, Matthew 27. And then we'll pick it up in verse oh, 15. Quite a bit more detail than, than what Luke gives us. In verse 15 of Matthew 27, now at the feast, this would have been, remember it would have been a double feast because Passover and unleavened bread go together. Passover is one day, but it extends into three days when you add on even more when you add on unleavened bread. Now the feast of the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And they had their notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him. Now, we're gonna, this is really going to come out when we get to the Gospel of John. And what was really the issue, um, be, uh, they were losing control of the people because the people were now following the Lord instead of listening to the scribes and the Pharisees and that made them jealous and envious and here Pilate is sharp enough to perceive look I know the real reason the only reason you guys are here is you're jealous of of the crowds that he's attracting and the miracles that he's working for he knew because of envy they had delivered him And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, don't have anything to do with this just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So they're whooping up the crowd. Um, uh, it, It was them who stirred things up and got the people to insist that they give him Barabbas and crucify the Lord. Verse 21, the governor answered and said to them, well, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said, well, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. And then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And while Pilate saw that he could not persuade at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Um, Luke just comes out and tells us that he gave in to the crowd. Here, uh, Pilate is saying, I don't want anything to do with this. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. And so here, you're not gonna see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, This could really be a major sidetrack, but just to remind you that at this point, the clock stops with Israel and he's done dealing with them. Romans, if you're taking notes, 9, 10, and 11 clearly says that God is not done with Israel. And we took a whole Sunday and talked about replacement theology and dominionism and um, that all the promises that were given to Israel now apply to the church and how that's not the case at all. It says in Romans, a blindness has happened to the Jews in part until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and then all Israel will be saved. Now that is a major verse because it implies a lot. First of all, it implies that there's a set number that the Lord knows. 
we read on Sunday, um, he even numbers the stars and he, he counts them. And he names them, he knows the number, but he's also giving, given to them names. So it is with the church. The Lord knows exactly how many people are gonna make up the church of Jesus Christ. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, as a reference to the church. On Sunday, I also made reference in Matthew that um, he was talking to Peter, and he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And it's the first time the word church is mentioned by Jesus in scripture. So the church began at Pentecost, had a starting point, and it'll have an ending point when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, when that last person becomes a Christian, the Lord will take the the church home. And then the clock begins, and then it goes on to say, and so Israel will be saved. Um, But that, you can't make a doctrine out of that also because all of Israel won't be saved. Some of them will be killed. Some of them, many of them will be converted because of the two witnesses and 144,000. So we have uh, given to us here a little bit more information. Let's go back to Luke now and pick it up in verse, where we live off, verse 12, let's pick it up in verse 13 to uh, 14 to 18. What, no wonder, it's wrong. Look at it, chapter 22, no wonder it's not making any sense. All right, <laughs> uh, picking up in chapter 23, verse um, 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, rulers, and the people, he said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I find no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. This is the second time. Nor either did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing worthy of death had been found by him. What I'll do is I'll chastise him or scourge him, and then I'll let him go. Uh, For it was necessary to release one of them at the feast. Uh, For they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas who had been thrown in a prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. So um, Barabbas is a murderer. And um, Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to him, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And then he said to them the third time. Now this is three times that Pilate is declaring What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore scourge him, and then I'm gonna let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. What? Luke doesn't tell us is that afterwards, he says, oh, I want nothing to do with this. Matthew tells us, he says, give me some water. My wife's been having nightmares over this man. Something's not right here. What you're doing is wrong, and I'm washing my hands of this whole thing. And we don't get that here. Here we just see Pilate relenting, and he released to them the one they requested uh, who for insurrection and murder had been thrown into prison, but they delivered Jesus to do Uh, their will. All right, let's stop here just for a minute. Um, This is all wrong. If Jesus is guilty of something, fine. Uh, He should be punished. On the other hand, if he truly is innocent and Pilate judged him so, um, he he should have been set free. To chastise him and uh, let him go is to compromise. Um, there's a man named Marlowe, the Englishman. He has a quote that says that compromise is the most immoral word in the English language. And that's what Pilate is doing here. He's trying to keep both sides happy 
and trying to stay out of it, so he's compromising in doing so. Uh, it makes me think of um, probably one of the greatest Christian musicians who ever lived before he died in a plane crash in Texas was Keith Green. Now, Keith's, probably his most famous album was called No Compromise. And Keith was. He was Jewish. He got converted um, as part of the, the Jesus movement. And um, um, you can get his story in DVD form. And um, uh, he was truly, this is, what, this is what I remember about Keith Green. And what can happen to Christian musicians when they get sucked into the Nashville scene? They go there with good intentions to use their gifts to serve the Lord. But what it turns into as they sign contracts with a, a record label, uh, there's stipulations. And part of the stipulations is they're actually turning it into a business when you sign a contract. Well, when Keith um, became very well known, we used to get his newsletters called Last Days Ministries. And he simply couldn't, he couldn't do it. He says, Lord, I can't do this. He had to go to the guy that signed him and he says, I want out of my contract because I can't charge for the gospel. And um, I forget the, uh, the guy's name, but you know, that's the last thing that his agent or producer wanted to hear that I'm gonna give my albums away for free. And uh, he said on a newsletter, he said, if you'd like one of my albums, you can get one for free. If you, want to make a, uh, if you want to make a donation, you can make a donation for a dollar. And you don't even have to have a donation. And if you want one of my albums, you can have it. Just write Last Days Ministries and we'll send it to you. Well, you know, that ministered to a lot of people. So there were some people that would send in a check for $5 and other Christians of means that said, this guy's right on. There should be no charging for the gospel. There should be more tables being overturned for doing such things. So what they were doing is some people were sending in checks for $5,000 for one album and knowing that it would cover the cost of anything else Keith was doing. So the Lord blessed him in, in the long run because he took this stand. Nobody else would. I don't know another Christian musician who gives away their albums. And it puts them in a position, almost a business, um, that got a lot, of, a lot of people upset, but a lot more were simply convicted. I guess I better get back to where I was, huh? <laughs> but no compromise. And what was Pilate doing here? He was trying to keep both sides happy. And just being, he was governor. He had found him innocent, and um, he let these guys get them all riled up. And the job of the Romans, and they were in charge here, was to keep peace, especially during the Passover. And I think one of the reasons he backed down is it says there was a, an insurrection rising. And that was the last thing he needed on, on Passover. So we find now, we're just going to read verses 26 to 38. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now the reason for this was uh, the beating, a typical Roman beating, I've talked about this before, uh, was to solicit confession from the prisoner. And it was always 40 lashes minus one. And um, we find, even in the Old Testament, capital punishment was done by stoning. Um, um, if punishment was to be dished out, you could give stripes on a person's back, but no more than 40. So just to make sure that they didn't break the law by miscounting, they only gave 39. It says 40 minus one. Well, the reason that is, is what if they miscounted? Then they just broke the law. 
by making it more than 40. So the Lord received 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails, they called them, which was a, le- a leather whip embedded with either pieces of metal or stone, and it pretty much laid open um, the back where he would have lost a lot of blood already, and many people would die just from, from the scourging. And so uh, the reason that the Lord needed help here is because, remember, he's been up all night since he was arrested, and uh, then back and forth, Pilate and Herod, and now the scourging. And so they get this man to carry the cross. Verse 27, a great multitude of the people followed him, and the women also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for, for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they'll say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? And there were two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So the Lord would have been in the middle. I decided today, because we're going to be talking about this more, about the reality of suffering. And um, it's not talked about enough from the pulpit as part of the Christian walk. And... um, we want to be, it talks about the power of his, we want the fellowship of the power of the resurrection, but also it says the fellowship of his suffering. But that's never taught on. So on Sunday, we're going to give this happy, clappy message on suffering. <laughs> because it's a reality. And to only preach positive sermons that people want to hear is not what the scriptures teach at all. But I thought I would take a little sidetrack tonight and just talk about the act of crucifixion. Again, capital punishment for a Jew would have been stoning. The Romans had invented this and it was their form of such cruelty and the idea was to solicit fear. They would crucify people along the road and very close to the city gate. So when people walk by, um, um, many times they would have their crime nailed up on, in front of them, and we'll get to that in the next verse here. But I'm going to stop and talk a little bit about um, the, her- the horrible, cruel death of crucifixion, of crucifying somebody. And I actually went online, and I typed in death by crucifixion and uh, could have picked a lot of different articles but just to give you um, some insights on people who have actually um, done serious research on this, bear with me as I read from what I pulled off the internet today nailing a person's feet to the upright section of the cross wasn't an afterthought precisely how the lower body was treated could affect how long a person lived. Most victims simply had their feet nailed to the wood, so their knees were bent at a 45-degree angle. Some had their legs broken. Whether this was an act of cruelty or mercy depends on one's perspective. Hanging from the arms for any considerable length of time is painful, Once the muscles give out its um, excruciating pain, the shoulders actually separate from the sockets and the overall arm length is lengthened by inches. Most people would try to support themselves by putting pressure on their injured feet, but with their legs bent and the feet nailed, 
though it was only a matter of time before their leg strength would also give way. Uh, Breaking their legs was horrible, but on the other hand, allowing them to support themselves prolonged the suffering that they were going through. Then it says the medical side of crucifixion. What part of their suffering led to death is debatable. Through the centuries, doctors have looked into it and come to different conclusions. Some say that crucifixion alone wasn't enough to kill a person, and so the victim possibly could have died of exposure or thirst after three days on a cross. One doctor believed that crucified people, after much torment, died via a voluntary surrender of life. They just gave up. Some think that the wounds elsewhere in the body sent a blood clot to the heart. One expert in forensic medicine, Frederick Zugby, actually tied himself and volunteers to a cross to monitor what physical uh, physicality uh, takes place during a crucifixion. He concluded that uh, victims died from hypovolemic shock. Uh, this condition sets in when a body has lost so much uh, blood and fluid that the heart simply can't continue to function. In any of these cases, it's the injuries and exposure that determine the cause of death by crucifixion, not the position of the person on the cross. Most experts agree, though, that what ultimately kills a crucified person is suffocation. Either the body loses so much oxygen that the person smothers, or the carbon dioxide level in the body goes up so much that the body tissues turns acidic and destroys their own cells. How fast it happens depends on a lot of factors. One common form of crucifixion didn't involve a cross. A person was crucified with his hands over their head. This made it so difficult to breathe once their strength had given out, uh, they were dead within an hour. Being crucified with arms outstretched was comparatively much worse. After arms, a person's arms have come out of their sockets, the chest would sag downward, uh, stretching out to its full extent, If you strenuously stretch out your arms, even while you're seated, you'll recognize the difficulty. It's easy to inhale with arms fully uh, outstretched, but difficult to exhale again. The body needs to work its muscles to breathe in and out, and it's used to doing so with little resistance. Once the chest is fully expanded, it's impossible to breathe in anything more than a sip of air. The victim slowly suffocates, unable to get enough oxygen over the course of a day. There are probably um, not many more painful ways for a person to die. Now, personal story that I've told before that many of you have heard. This goes back to 72, Oshkosh, going to a a well-balanced Assembly of God church. And um, we had a traveling evangelist come through um, who put on a skit that was called The Great White Throne Judgment where people would come up from different parts of their life and um, uh, there would be a, a guy over here who had the book of life and he would have to stand and give an account. And then um, I happened to be able to be God and Jesus because I was the only hippie in the church who had long hair and a beard. So I got to say is his name in the book. And he'd look and he'd go, he's not here. And I'd say, depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's, it's pretty dramatic when it's put. And this guy was really a perfectionist with um, how this had to be played out. But the other part that I got to play was actually Jesus on the cross. And he liked me so much, he took me on the road with him. Um, down to Chicago and a couple other places in Milwaukee. And, um, but I tell the story for this reason. When we were doing uh, the death on the cross, I was actually on a cross, 
and my arms were tied out like this. And the skit went on for about a half an hour. And just try it sometimes. Just do it for five minutes and tell me what your arms feel like after five minutes. I can tell you that I was in pain. And my arms were tied up, but I was still in pain. Even just a little bit of time I'm standing up here holding it right now, my arms are saying, it's time for you to let your arms down now because this, this is not comfortable. So with the Lord, it wasn't ropes. Uh, he, uh, there's the debate whether it was in the wrist or here, and I, I don't, that's a trivial thing because the fact is he was, he was uh, crucified and nails were put in his, in his hands and then the sword uh, in his side. And uh, having experienced that that just a little bit, um, what the Lord must have gone through. We we read this and uh, we simply read the words here, and he came to Calvary and there they crucified him and we keep going. But we never stop and talk about what is crucifixion? What kind of pain was really inflicted upon people that would put such fear in them that they would never cross a Roman so that that would ever happen to them. And um, last week we were talking about Simon Peter. Remember when we got to chapter 21 and verses 15 through 17, we had, Peter, do you love me? And we went through those verses, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Went through that three times. That brought you to verse 17. But then you get to verse 18. And the Lord pulls Peter aside and he says, now Peter, when you were a young man, you went where you wanted to, you did what you wanted to do. But the day is coming where they're gonna tie you up and they're gonna take you to a place that you don't wanna go. This is from Fox's Book of Martyrs. And what it goes on to say in verse 18, right after that, it says, by this, Jesus was telling what manner of death Peter would die but he doesn't tell us what manner he just says he's going to die in other words a martyr I'm reading now from Fox's book of martyrs how Simon Peter died Peter's final days in Rome are not described in the scriptures but various traditional accounts have survived reportedly he sent he spent horrific months in the infamous maritime prison a place where Incarceration was often itself a death sentence. Um, Though mistreated, uh, Peter survived the torture and apparently communicated the gospel effectively to his guards. So the guys that he were chained to, he actually led to the Lord while he was in this prison. Eventually, he was hauled out of the dungeon, taken to Nero's circus, and there they crucified Uh, And they're crucified upside down because Peter did not consider himself worthy to be crucified with his head upwards like Christ. So um, Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified, but he says, I can't, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. So the suffering that Peter went through We're going to be in Peter, um, chapters 3, 4, and 5. All chapters deal with the reality of the Christian life and suffering. And so we'll actually get into quite a bit of detail of that on Sunday. Along with, um, we're going to be in Job, that uh, clearly tells us that there's spiritual warfare that can cause suffering and uh, actual physical affliction. That in spiritual warfare, when it comes to suffering, the devil can actually be a part of it. And I don't want to go too much into that because I'll be giving away stuff that I want to save for Sunday. But I did not just want to read over uh, this chapter and say they went to Calvary and there they crucified him without actually stopping and say, let's talk about crucifixion and what the Lord actually went through. And... Um, Isaiah chapter 53, we'll be there in a second, but uh, let's read the next verse. Let's go back to Luke 23. We left off 
with the two criminals on each side. And then the Lord said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And they divided his garment and cast lots. And uh, the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneering, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. For if he is the Christ, the chosen of God, and the soldiers also mocked him, uh, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And an inscription was written over him in the letters, and it was written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now, when Jesus was crucified, they put this superscription over him in these three languages, in Greek and Latin and in Hebrew. Greek was the language of the intellects, either of education or literature or science. Latin was the language of law and order and the military and government. And Hebrew was the language of religion. When the Lord returns to set up his kingdom, he will be the political ruler, the educational ruler, the spiritual ruler of this universe. And how accurate this inscription uh, actually was. And um, um, we find here the first of seven sayings that Jesus will say from the cross here, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And then this fulfills Isaiah chapter 53 um, where they cast lots for him. All right, let's go on to verse 39 through 43. I call this the deathbed conversion. Then one of the criminals who was hanging blasphemed him saying, if you're the Christ and save yourself and while you're at it, save us too. But the other one answering rebuked him saying, don't you even fear God seeing that you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. And the Lord said unto him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here, um, and um, let's see, I want to read up to verse 43. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, let's turn. What we have here is um, two men. One of them is you're going to meet someday. He's in heaven. And the other one is in hell. Luke chapter 16 talks about Lazarus dying and being carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. When it says, today you'll be with me in paradise, he wasn't talking about going to heaven. Oh, he's there now. But he said, today. And we know that Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. So he could have gone to heaven. Where did he go? If you're taking notes, Ephesians 4 tells us. Before he ascended, what does it mean that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth and he led the captives free. Well, who were the captives? Well, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that the Old Testament saints, when they died, they died in faith, but they didn't receive the promise. But they looked forward to it. So what did the Lord do for those three days while he was there? Proclaiming the gospel and setting the captives free. Who was there with them? This guy here, who got saved at the last minute. Is it possible to live your whole life as a murdering thief, done nothing right, no sinner's prayer, no baptism, had absolutely no good works going for him at all, and still go to heaven? The answer is absolutely yes. And his sinner's prayer was, Lord, remember me. He said, Lord. So God saw his heart, and um, he says, Today, you're going to be in paradise. Paradise is called Abraham's bosom. 
it no longer exists. Second Corinthians 5 tells us to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. I just did a funeral um, uh, in Oshkosh and I, I shared this on, on Sunday what um, Donna Hig- uh, Higley, I think is how her parents' last name, she was with us for many years. When they went to her, find her personal effects, her belongings, in her safe where she kept her valuables, was this poem. And if you weren't here, I read the poem on Sunday. I'll save you the, the flowery stuff that went before it and just get to the last two lines. She says, if you're by my grave, don't weep for me. I'm not here because I did not die. And that, was, that is what she wanted her relatives to find that was valuable to her. Uh, to know that you don't die. Everybody lives forever. That question, that's not the question. The question is where are you going to live forever? You are spirit, you have a soul, it's eternal. So the playing field is level when it comes to all falling short. You are no different than Barabbas. Well, I never killed anybody. Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, then you've committed murder in your heart. Well, I've never committed adultery. Well, if you've looked at a woman or a man with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Who did Jesus die for? Who took his place? My friends, you're Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. I got set free, and I'm the guilty one. And um, just don't give up on witnessing to people, even if sometimes, you know, the old saying, there's, there's no atheist in a foxhole. But some people... They can be so stubborn, uh, just like this guy who didn't make it. He said, don't you even fear God now? You're dying, man. <laughs> this, is, this is no time to play Russian roulette with your soul. You know, we've got nothing to lose here if this man says he's the son of God. He said, Lord, remember me. Well, that guy's gonna be in heaven someday. All right, picking up in verse 44, We read, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Now, I want to just stop there, and I want you to turn with me to the book of Amos. Now, Amos is one of those little, um, it's in the Minor Prophets. I'll tell you the books before and after it. The book after Amos is Obadiah. Uh, The book before Amos is the book of Joel. So I'm going to give you a moment to find your find you, and I want you to turn there because I want to point something out that's important as we study the scriptures. I want to point out a couple things here. The overall message in Amos chapter 8 is a a vision of the summer fruit, and um, it's making a basic message that he's talking to Israel about. But then, all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, we have verse nine. And in verse nine, it says, it will come to pass in that day that the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, I've I've said this often, that we shouldn't let it throw us when we have an Old Testament prophecy. The prophet can be having a train of thought, and all of a sudden, we have this one verse just thrown in there. And if you read verse 11, it kind of ties in with it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but the hearing of the words of the Lord. And uh, that's one of the things that's happening today. There is a famine in the land. Not over religion, there's all kinds of religion going on. But for studying the word of God, and um, teaching it like we're doing tonight, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And being familiar with, in the middle of these um, prophecies to Israel, the Lord will just stop and pull this one out and talks about these three hours. Go back now to Luke 23 and look at verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. So that would have been from noon till 
three o'clock. That is a prophecy from Amos chapter eight, verse nine. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. For this, I want you to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 26 and talk a little bit about the veil. Exodus 26, uh, picking it up in verse 31. The inner veil and the outer veil. Now this would have been um, that what we call the wilderness or the tabernacle temple, it would have been portable. When the cloud that overshadowed them by day was a shelter from the sun, and at night it was a fire to keep them warm. When the cloud stopped, all of Israel stopped, and they would put the tabernacle up for an undetermined period of time. But as we look here in Exodus, it talks about the building in 25 of the showbread, the golden lampstand, the curtains of linen in chapter 26, the boards and the sockets. And then in verse 31, it talks about this veil that's going to be ripped from the top to the bottom. So Exodus 26, verse 31, you shall make a veil woven of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, fine linen thread. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. In other words, it's going to be very beautiful. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of the acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be made of gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp, and then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in here, the ark of the covenant, Behind the veil, the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. Now the holy place would have been where the table of showbread would have been, the golden lamp stands, um, the incense, um, where they burned incense. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant, and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. And you shall put the, the table on the north side. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27 really quick. This is not my notes, but something I'm doing from memory that I want to point out here. Matthew 27, picking up verse 51. But let's read verse 50 first of all. We'll get to that in just a second in Luke's account. When Jesus, in verse 50, when he had cried out again with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. And when he did, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. The earthquake and rocks were split, and graves were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. Now, this is what's important. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one to be resurrected with a resurrected body. But who are these other people? Well, these are the ones who died in faith that were in Abraham's bosom. When the Lord cleared that place out, evidently the Lord, for some reason, allowed some of them to appear to friends and relatives in Jerusalem. So it's important that we read this correctly. They came out of their graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. But in verse 51, the veil of the temple. Only the high priest could go into the holy of holies and that only on Yom Kippur. It was the holiest day in Israel's where he would make atonement for the sins of the people. The idea was that God is so holy that to go in there and even if the high priest didn't go through the ritual cleansing act for himself for his own sins, they would actually tie a rope around his leg and he would have bells at the bottom of his garment. And so if all of a sudden you didn't hear the ding, 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 ding of the bells and he's not coming out, that means he's dead on the inside because he is coming into the presence of a holy God and he wasn't cleansed in the biblical Levit- Levitical matter, matter that he should have been. 
So the idea here of the veil being rent is that God is holy and man just can't go strutting up and walk into the presence of God. Now you can. Because it was ripped from the top to the bottom. And what it was saying, how would you like to have been the guy, the Levitical priest uh, changing the incense that day? <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's wide open. And there's the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, I'm a dead man. I'm sure he said, I'm a dead man. I'm, this is, it's over for me. And nothing happens. Well, um, what happened when it says the veil of the temple, let's go back to Luke and finish this up. And um, the doorway is open. Jesus said, I am the door. And now he is, it's able for man to have direct access because of Christ. Verse 46, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Um, Jesus said, I have power to lay down my life. I have power to lay it down. I have power to raise it up again. He also had the power when he said, it is finished. And these were his final words. All right, my work is over. And so he dismissed his own spirit. Boy, I wish I could do that. (laughs) I wish I could say, okay, old body, you can go home now. No, but the Lord can. Work was done to tell us it is finished. My job is done. And so the Lord dismissed his spirit and he died. They were surprised that he had died that quickly. And the Sabbath was coming. Well, let's let's read this out because our time is running out. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man. He had not consented to their counsel and deeds, and he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself also waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock where no one had ever lain before. I'm going to show you a picture of that as we close tonight. Go ahead, guys, put it on the screen. Uh, This is in a very close proximity to where I believe Calvary is, the place of the skull. And um, this is a first century tomb. It was unearthed, I think, if I remember right, uh, in the 40s or somewhere along there. And it is property of Great Britain. And when we visit, we'll be visiting there in November. It'll be our last day there. And... um, um, it, it's just an overwhelming experience to visit uh, this particular place but we have to have a British guide they have control of this piece of property so we actually change guides and there's about 20 different spots as, as the people will come you'll have your own little section that you can, you can go to and have your own Bible study have, we have communion there and then we actually can walk into uh, this place. I personally believe that this is the actual tomb. Uh, and the Brits give you a very strong argument why it is. Whether it is or whether it isn't really isn't the issue. Um, what if it's not? Doesn't matter. Because he rose from the dead anyway. Maybe it was another tomb. That's not the issue. The issue is he's not here he is risen, and we find that Joseph of Arimathea was uh, wrapped it and laid him in his tomb. Verse 54, the day was a preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed him, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Um, they couldn't finish the job because the sun was setting and the Sabbath was coming. That's why they don't return again till Sunday morning. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. 
So I'm glad I did. I don't know what I was thinking. Actually, thinking I was going to get through 24. That's crazy. That's not going to happen. So um, let's stand and we'll close in prayer, Lord. When we think about the fellowship of your suffering and um, that we are not exempt, they said if they they've done these things to you, they will do it also to us if they can. Um, we thank you so much, Lord, that all that we should be um, found guilty of, we're guilty of, that you took our, our place and you suffered in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. And for this, Lord, we're just grateful and we thank you once again that you died in our place and you've given us your righteousness. And we thank you so much for our salvation, Lord. Help us to never, ever, ever take it for granted. But be eternally grateful for the work of Calvary and what you went through. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was done to tell us it is finished. My job is done. And so the Lord dismissed his spirit and he died. They were surprised that he had died that quickly. And they, the Sabbath was coming. Well, let's, let's read this out because our time is running out. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts in return. But all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man, he had not consented to their counsel and deeds, and he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself also waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock where no one had ever lain before. I'm going to show you a picture of that as we close tonight. Go ahead, guys, put it on the screen. Uh, this is in a very close proximity to where I believe Calvary is, the place of the skull. And um, this is a first century tomb. It was unearthed, I think, if I remember right, uh, in the 40s or somewhere along there. And it is property of Great Britain. And when we visit, we'll be visiting there in November. It'll be our last day there. And... um, um, it, it's just an overwhelming experience to visit uh, this particular place, but we have to have a British guide. They have control of this piece of property, so we actually change guides. And there's about 20 different spots as as the people will come. You'll have your own little section that you can you can go to and have your own Bible study. Have we have communion there? And then we actually can walk into uh, this place. I personally believe that this is the actual tomb. Uh, And the Brits give you a very strong argument why it is. Whether it is or whether it isn't really isn't the issue. Um, What if it's not? Doesn't matter. Because he rose from the dead anyway. Maybe it was another tomb. That's not the issue. The issue is he's not here He is risen, and we find that Joseph of Arimathea was uh, wrapped it and laid him in his tomb. Verse 54, the day was a preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed him, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Um, They couldn't finish the job because the sun was setting and the Sabbath was coming. That's why they don't return again till Sunday morning. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So I'm glad I did. I don't know what I was thinking, actually, thinking I was going to get through 24. That's crazy. That's not going to happen. So um, let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, when we think about the fellowship of your suffering, and um, that we are not exempt. 
They said if they've done these things to you, they will do it also to us if they can. Um, We thank you so much, Lord, that all that we should be um, found guilty of, we're guilty of, that you took our, our place and you suffered in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. And for this, Lord, we're just grateful and we thank you once again that you died in our place and you've given us your righteousness. And we thank you so much for our salvation, Lord. Help us to never, ever, ever take it for granted, but be eternally grateful for the work of Calvary and what you went through. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.